1: Welcome into the QB SCO show. This is episode 52, brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. That's K I S T. And here with me, as always, to break down quarterbacks around the world is quarterback one in my heart, in our dreams. He is Mark Schofield. Mark, brother. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, buddy. Always good to be with you. And today's a good show. I'm very excited for it. We got listener questions, so I'm going to keep it quick on the historical reference here. And we're recording this on Tuesday, February 11th, and it is primary day in the great state of New Hampshire, the first of the nation primary. And that gives me a chance to talk briefly about one of my favorite traditions, and that is Dixville Notch. (laughs) It's a small, unincorporated community in Dixville Township, Coos County, New Hampshire. The population of the township all of whom live in Dixville Notch, was 12. That's right, 12 as of the 2010 sentence. (laughs) And since, I believe it is 1960, all the eligible voters in Dixville Notch gather at midnight in the Ballroom of the Balsams, which is this huge grand resort hotel, to cast their votes. It's one of my favorite things. Every election cycle, I was up, you know, after midnight last night, watching it, you know, seeing everybody like turn in their ballots. There's actually this little tradition where the tradition was first organized by prominent Dixville Notch resident Neil Tillotson, who died in October of 2001. He was traditionally the first voter. He would hold his ballot over the ballot box while looking at his wristwatch, and at the moment of midnight, he would drop the ballot into the ballot box, and the rest of the town's residents will follow suit. Since he passed away from pneumonia in 2001 at the age of 102. The first voter has been chosen by random ballot beforehand. And it's, it's just always fun. It's a little bit of like tiny democracy in action. And so Dixville Notch – there are other places that do it in New Hampshire. Hart's location is another one. But Dixville Notch did it first and I always like seeing it every you know Tuesday morning. Bright and early
1: on primary day. I, I You could tell where I'm at mentally in my maturity because I just I just full-on giggled at Dixville for that yeah, entire time. Yeah, I mean it's
0: a ridiculous name. It's an absolutely ridiculous name. When we were watching it last night before we went to bed, my, my wife was just like, if I hear Dixville one more time, <laughs> I am throwing something through the TV. <laughs> so amazing. I get it. Believe me, I get it.
1: All right. So let's get to some of the listener questions. We reached out to you on Twitter and the gentle listener, you – uh, you came through with a lot of great questions about a lot of different topics. We got history stuff, asking about our marriages, which are fine. Totally got, fine, obviously. We got some scheme evaluation stuff, eagles related, non-Eagles related. So a good variety of questions. This will be a little bit looser of a format here, but let's get to the first one. We'll kind of keep it with with the Eagles. We'll go with Scott McGill first at SRM Chef. He said, need Mark's take on Scangarello. Scangarello obviously brought into the Eagles. He was with the Broncos previously. Everybody knows who he is by now. We've had three shows covering those coaches changes since then on the BGN feed here. Uh, he says, in regards to where the scheme will go, what he will bring to Wentz's development. And while you, Mark, turned down the OC job, is it because right. you're a dirty, stinking Pats fan? Just is a filthy,
0: disgusting Patriots fan. No, I did not. I was not offered the gig had i been offered that gig or any gig in the philadelphia eagles organization i would happily take it so listen if you're listening howie just just you hit the available they're they're open i will be just an assistant to the assistant quarterback coach like that's fine but no as with jangarello like i think the expectation was when he went to denver that they were going to have sort of that kubiak type feel a lot of outside zone with boot action off of it that was sort of where. Joe Flacco was, for example, when he was at his best under Gary Kubiak. It was when he was running a kind of boot action game. And we would think that that would fit Flacco, that would fit Drew Locke, and that would in a sense fit Carson Wentz as well. The weird thing that I want to see play out with this hire, the aggressiveness. We've talked a lot on this show about Carson Wentz and his aggressive nature at times and how sometimes you need to sort of dial that back and have the right sort of balance You know, Wentz is, you know, aggressive by nature. Scangarello was criticized in and around Denver, coming from the top, Flacco and Fangio. They wanted to be more aggressive as an offense. They thought they were too conservative at times. So you wonder if this is either a nod towards maybe getting Wentz to dial it back at times or if this is going to work. Like, that's sort of my concern with this. Like, the conservatism that we've seen from Scangarello's offense at times, especially last year. I don't know if that's the best fit for where Wentz is. Do you?
1: Mm. Yeah. No, it, it's interesting because there was a big talk between BLG and Jimmy Kemsky about you know that conservatism that we saw from Scangarello that Denver didn't like. But mainly, I think the big thing was getting new ideas from the outside. And yeah. because, I mean, Doug's going to be the one pulling the trigger. It's not Skangarello on like fourth and three going, man, we should punt here. It's going to be Doug right. going, no, we're going for it. You know, Scang is what you got. <laughs> you yeah. know, you got anything, got anything fresh for us. So I think that's, that's the bigger thing. And then, then also, you know, the hire of the, the Mississippi State passing game coordinator there. What's his day? Briner. Yeah, Bryner. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that has more to do with Wentz as well. Uh, Press Taylor, we'll see what we get from him. So, some quick thoughts on on, on Scan who you know, I I like the idea, and I think he got a raw deal where he was with Denver. And we're not asking him to be a play sequencer. We're not asking him to you know make those decisions on fourth down. As far as a relationship with Wentz, I have no idea how that's going right. to go. Like we no. uh, on looking from, from the outside in. It's it's like trying to put a puzzle together in the dark as far as what yeah. we know. So there's almost some only so much we can say about that. Let, let's kind of keep it with the with the Eagles here. Jeremy Lupowitz at J A L or J A Lupowitz asks, who will be the Eagles' back up to Wentz in 2020? Could actually be three separate segments over three episodes talking about A, in-house options with McCown, Sudfeld, Loletta. B, free agent slash trade options. C, draft options. And Mark, let's kind of keep it with maybe some free agents that are kind of out there. I think Sudfeld might walk. And then Loletta is obviously there on the practice squad. And I think that's kind of where he stays. I think his ceiling is probably quarterback three, at least for a little bit. But like looking through the free agency list, and we're going to talk about some of these guys later, like the big names, like Phillip Rivers. Looking through it, like is it Teddy Bridgewater? Is it Marcus Mariota? Is it Case Keenum? Like, is there anybody on this list where you go, you plug him in at quarterback two, and you're like, yeah, you're good? Because last year, I remember before the Eagles signed like Josh McCown, and we knew that that Nick Foles was going and everything like that. Ryan Fitzpatrick was the guy that I wanted for the McCown role, but he signed through uh, through 2020 with the Dolphins, unfortunately. So uh, the Eagles went a different way with kind of like that mentorship role. I'm not sure if there's a mentor type in this free agency class that I really love. I really just want a guy that can get you through a few games. I think Bridgewater and, and Mariota like fit that bill and possibly even Keenum. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is such a weird offseason at the quarterback position because you've got in addition to the big free agent names that we know, Breeze, Brady, Rivers, you know, you've got decisions that have to be made about Jameis Winston. You've got some guys that could be available via trade given how their organizations might be going in a different direction, whether it's an Andy Dalton or a Cam Newton. So there's a lot of dominoes that have to fall to see how this free agency market sort of shakes out. You know, a name that I would consider, I think, for Philadelphia is Chase Daniel. Mm. Obviously, there's going to be some familiarity with the offense. The expectations in and around Chicago are that they're not going to just roll with Mitch and Daniel, that Daniel is going to be allowed to sort of test free agency because they need to get somebody in, potentially a Marcus Mariota, to push Mitchell Trubisky because as we've covered on this show, <laughs> they might have tapped out of the ceiling of Mitchell Trubisky. So Daniel is an interesting name. You know, Sudfeld's another intriguing name in that I think there will be teams excited about exploring the options with him. Yeah. You know, I wrote a piece over at Big Blue View just last week about, you know, free agent options behind Daniel Jones, and I put Nate Sudfeld in that mix because we know if they're going to get vertical under Jason Garrett, have more of a Coriel feel to their offense, If there's a guy that loves to throw the nine ball when he sees press man coverage on the outside. <laughs> it's Nate Sudfeld. <laughs> and so, you no, know, that, that might be a scheme fit. Some of the other names don't inspire a ton of confidence. I mean... Blake Bortles, Sean Madden, Geno Smith, I, Matt Moore. <laughs> yeah, it it kind of thins out. Like, you no, know, there there's a name that I there are two names that I like, but they're both exclusive rights free agents, so yeah. it's probably not going to happen. But Nick Mullins and Josh Woodrow, mm. like Mullins, I think is a very intriguing quarterback. I've written at length that I would love to see him you know, somehow make his way to New England. But I I think he's a very intriguing quarterback. And
1: then he's got this
0: Gangarello connection because Gangarello was there with Mullins at uh, San Fran. So, yeah, I mean, that that would make sense. Yeah, That would make sense. But again, he's an ERFA. So all they have to do is just give him a contract and it's either he plays or he sits. Yeah. You know, they'd have to trade him. Um, Woodrum, he's got a big arm. Like he's an intriguing guy, but he's bounced around another ERFA. Like it's just a weird, I guess you could go the Chicago Tribune route you know, an article that came out while we were at dinner at Dolph Eads where it was like they could side Dak Prescott or Tom Brady or Philip Rivers to back up Mitchell Trubisky. They could try that because I, I guess those are options <laughs> to back up Mitchell yeah. Trubisky. That's I a- mean,
1: man, what an
0: article! What a- I mean, we were we were literally out to dinner. We were just like, what? What is
1: this reality? What is this? <laughs> this came from the trip. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't believe my eyes, and like I said on Twitter today, I'm like, look, give it a few months. And perhaps Trubisky can reach his like 2019 status of where like he's actually like a polarizing type dude because Bears fans need to believe in Mitch again for my takes to hit because if they don't, they don't have the same impact. It's not as fun. Like towards the end of last season, like after the after the like the second half of the season, I was like, it's not it's pointless doing Mitch Trubisky takes. Everybody knows what this guy is at this point. Yeah, I was right, but it's not fun anymore. It's,
0: it's like that it. that photo of Ali, right? It's right. the punch Ali didn't it throw. It's like, you know, yeah. it's not even fun anymore.
1: We'll go with uh, Parson here. Parson Gars. Gars, oh, Parson. He's going to kill me over pronouncing that. But like, yeah. brother, make it more clear what your name is. Uh, he says uh, he also asked about the backup plan for quarterback. We'll we'll save the backup options in the draft as we approach the draft. So we'll save that content right there. But he also asked for our reviews of 1917. So re- really quick, I'll just I'll just put it out there. I have the the advanced, you know, for your consideration copy of 1917. Sure, an important person. I have not watched 1917 yet. However, it is on the on the list of what I'm going to get through this week. Of the of the Oscars, like Parasite went and killed it. Haven't seen it yet, but I had full faith that that was going to be a really good movie because I'm a big Korean cinema fan. So I'm probably going to go through another Korean cinema uh, phase. Again, so not surprised at all that Parasite was awesome. Uh, so that was something I, I would say a lot of people are already streaming already, but go ahead and go through like the catalog of like just google best korean films of the 21st century you'll come up with like a a really good article and a really good list it has like old boy and i saw the devil and joint security area like all these different the man from nowhere like all these different movies the chasers one of my favorite like these are fantastic movies like if i had to pick i would go a korean cinema over american cinema all day long maybe that's just me but I think I think they're awesome, and I, I think the way that they end their movies is so much better than we see typically here in America because they just don't give a crap about your feelings. 1917, Mark, I think you enjoyed it. What would you think?
0: I did, and let's be honest here. A movie about World War One where the main character's last name is Schofield, like, it's pretty much in the wheelhouse. It was a given that I was going to like this movie. It was the only one of the Oscar-nominated films for Best Picture that I actually saw this year, and so, Yeah. I, we don't get to the movies a ton, you know. It's we're busy, but I saw it last Friday. I went to the theater, and I just thought it was an incredible experience. Like it, it was moving, it was powerful. I thought it encapsulated like life in the trenches extremely well. I thought they did a very good job, sort of the tension, like building to tension moments and building the fear and the uncertainty about life, like beyond the like three feet in front of you that you would often see during World War One. I. I, I thought they did that extremely well. I know a lot of people called the like the one take one shot style to it somewhat gimmickly. I thought it worked. I mean, I, I thought it worked extremely well. Obviously, there was a plot device that allowed them to uh, advance time a little bit, but I I was blown away by it. It was one of those movies where it got done, and I sort of just like sat there and just sort of like reflected for a couple of minutes. Uh, I thought it was really powerfully done. I truly enjoyed it. Um,
1: highly would highly recommend it to people that haven't seen it yet. So there you go. And I want to watch it this week and I'm gonna have thoughts about it as well. Put those up on the timeline. A uh, quick one here, just a mock draft. I want to I want to uh, confess my, my love for somebody. So Marcos Levy asked at Levy Marcos 11 asked me for thoughts on his mock draft that he put up uh, using the draft network uh, mock Mach machine simulator. He had Henry Ruggs at 21, which look, I mean, you could do that. A 1,000 times until April, and I'm going to be like, yeah, of course. I recently graded uh, five wide receivers and rugs so far. And I haven't graded C.D. Lamb yet, but Ruggs so far was my number one just in front of Jerry Judy, also from Alabama. And compared to last year's board, I put those grades in, and he would have been my eighth overall prospect. So I liked him even better than I liked uh, D.K. Metcalf last year. So if you take Ruggs at 21, I'm not going to complain. Uh, I will confess my love for Ashton Davis, the safety out of California, who uh, uh, Marcos wisely took at 53. Safety is a position that me and Ben have been pounding the table for for the last couple of years. It looks like this is going to have to be the year where the Eagles finally figure out what they're doing long-term at that spot. Ashton Davis, free safety with a ton of range absolutely love him i think he's going to kill it kill it at the combine i don't think he's going to be available at 53 but we have no idea because the nfl uh draft is decadent and depraved he could end up shooting up boards like darnell savage jr did last year who i absolutely loved went to the packers in the first round so professing my love for ashen davis good draft marcos can't really comment on the on the rest of the guys, so I haven't really watched them yet, so I'm still going through the process. Uh, one more thing before we go to break. Mark, I'll give you a crack at this, but I, I think it's a pretty easy answer. Isaiah at Estendoze, that's Z-A-E, says, compare Carson Wentz to Abraham Lincoln. I just want to see if you guys can.
0: Oh, dear goodness. I don't want to get too dark here on the timeline and on the pod. I mean, there's a we, we could go down a dark road here. But I obviously look, there's a size comparison right here out the gate, right? <laughs> yeah, Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln very Lincoln tall man. Boy. Yeah. He was a big boy, had a little beard, little facial hair, a little growth. So does Carson Wetz. You could go down that road. I'm I'm not going to make a Jadavion Cloudy reference here. I don't want to do it. I was going to say, he's, he's John Wilkes Booth. I mean, that's the easiest thing I in mean, the world. Yeah, it is, but I don't want to get too dark here because, <laughs> look, we got a chance to talk about some 19th century Russian literature. I'm going to get dark in the second half of the show. I want to ease people into this a bit.
1: Okay. So we'll ease into it. I'll go the dark route. I think that's I think that's super easy. I'm not going to be like Darren Rovell and post a person being murdered on the timeline just to make Darren this comp. getting <laughs> murdered himself? No. Did you see when he posted the HD clip? Of uh JFK getting shot on like the anniversary oh, of the right. <laughs> that account, man. He woke up and said, Let me post a murder on the a timeline. not film on the TL. <laughs> so when we come back, we'll we'll see what Mark's talking about with that Russian literature question. We'll get into some QB evaluation things and some history things and whatnot. That's coming up next here on the QB Sco Show. And we are back here on the QB Sco Show, episode fifty-two. SB Nation, Bleedy Green Nation, bringing it to you. Michael Kist here with QB One in our hearts, in our minds. Mark Schofield, Mark, you already you already alluded to it. Let's tee it up for you. John Newman at Felix Monroe Five says, which nineteenth-century author would be best suited to write the story of the two thousand nineteen Eagles? It gives a list of them right there. One thing I will add to the to this list is that uh, Dostoevsky. My Siberian Husky, his name is Akira. Dog Stoyevsky. So there's that. That's my one contribution to this question. Mark, you said you actually took a, a lit class, a Russian lit class, nineteenth century lit class. <laughs> I did. That had to be fun. Uh, so I'm going to leave this question to you. Who do you, who do you think uh, would write it?
0: Yeah, and look, I took two classes. I took a number of different classes in college that were crazy. I'm not going to go down the road of what my major was. That's a whole show, show for another time. But one was "Profane Love and Holy Violence." What I talked about. Medieval, it was a class on medieval literature and architecture, which was fascinating. I, I learned about flying buttresses. It was great. And then the other was, look, 19th century Russian literature, which I never thought I'd get a chance to use once I entered the real world. But here I am, 25 years later, I get a chance to talk about it and. He he put out some good suggestions there. Dostoevsky, obviously, a, a great great pick. But I'm going to go with Mikhail Lemertov, who wrote A Hero of Our Time, which I'm actually holding up for the listeners. I'm going to read just a quick passage from it, and if this doesn't sound like basically what this show turned into <laughs> down the stretch, I, I I don't know what was. And this guy's talking about life in the war, and that was the happiest time of my life. I had hoped there'd be an end to boredom with Chechen bullets flying around, but I was wrong. After a month, I was so used to the hum of bullets and to being so close to death that I honestly took more noise than the mosquitoes. Now that I was more bored than ever with just about my last hope gone, when I saw my Bella in my quarters and held her on my knees and kissed her black curls for the first time, I was silly enough to think she was an angel sent down to me by a merciful fate. I was wrong again. A native girl's love is a little better than that of a lady of rank. The ignorance and simplicity of the one are as tiresome as the co- coquetry of the other. If you like, I'm still in love with her. I'm grateful to her for a few moments of relative bliss. I'd give my life for her, but she bores me. I don't know whether I'm a fool or a scoundrel, but one thing I'm sure of is that I'm just as much to be pitied as she is, perhaps even more. My soul has been corrupted by society. My imagination knows no peace. My heart knows satisfaction. I'm never satisfied. I grow used to sorrow as easily as I do to pleasure. My life gets emptier every day. The only thing left for me is to travel. As soon as I can, I'll leave. Not for Europe, though, not on your life. I'll go to America, Arabia, India. With luck, I'll die somewhere on the way. At least I can be sure there were storms and some bad roads to help this final solace will last me for a while. All that's missing from that is the guy saying, eat at Arby's.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I love I mean, that. That's okay. dark. Amazing. Let's go to uh, Greg Mello. He has an interesting question at MelloVibe76. He said, in Mark's opinion, what position did the Eagles address in the best case scenario at 21? What would the ideal prospect be? In Michael's opinion, which position would be the best case scenario for the e- for the Patriots at 23? And the ideal prospect with the Patriots. I'm assuming you guys are gonna w- wanna load up in, in the in the box in the in the front front four type type area there. Maybe, maybe looking for some pass rush. Am I am I am I looking at like AJ Ipeneza or Epineza or however you pronounce that from Iowa? Maybe Terrell Lewis is a is a shocker pick from Alabama there. You got the Belichick uh connection with with Saban. Is it are you looking for a pass rusher, Mark? Mark twice if you're in Milwaukee.
0: This is the gif of internal screaming below my face as I stare at you. If if you don't give this team a wide receiver or a tight end at 23, I'm literally going to snap, okay? Because, my goodness, this team
1: has a collection
0: it. of chuckleheads my size trying to play wide receiver right now. Yeah, it's Okay, not- so
1: LaVisca Chenault, are you be happy with that? Look, we're fighting to the
0: death over the wide receivers that fall to 21 and 23, I think.
1: Right, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. Which
0: is why I think both of us are praying that when Tampa Bay turns in the card at 14, it says Jacob Easton's name on it, which <laughs> means we've got five QBs going in the first 14, which means you've got guys like Ruggs and Chenault like falling down the board into our laps.
1: Mm, right?
0: Yeah. Like, yep. I mean, I, I could see, look, I could see Bill Belichick doing something silly and turning in the card for like a Zach Bond. And my Twitter mentions just like going full on thermonuclear. <laughs> I mean, but I think both teams go to address wide receiver the, the, with those picks. I mean, for the Eagles, look, Ruggs or Chenault. I think, yeah,
1: like, yeah, I agree, I agree, I, and, I, and I'm on board with both. So yeah, we're yeah. we're fighting for wide receivers. I like messing with Mark there about the edge rusher. Okay, let's was, go to uh, I was about Jake, to cry, <laughs> Jake Agliata at Agliata Jake. Interesting question this year. Ryan Tannehill had a breakout season after a change of scenery. Which quarterback do you believe will have a similar year in 2020 after switching teams? He says, my money is on Marcus Mariota. And I I think that's actually a decent bet. Mark, which which breakout candidate do you have for next year?
0: Look, I, I think Mariota is a great bet. If for no other reason than I want to be right on that evaluation, was my QB one, so I need that for the brand. We're, we're going to talk um, about
1: that whole process in a second with me, yeah. but yeah, go ahead.
0: Um, you know, I think he's a lot of it will be determined by landing spots. Like, if for some reason, I know Chris Trapasso had a thread out about like guys moving around, like eight different quarterbacks going places. Like he had Jimmy G going to New England, and you know Dak going to San Francisco, and Brady going to. Dallas like it could get nutty this offseason so it's going to depend on landing spots but I think Mariota is a great candidate for sort of having that like second act to his career you know another one might be Andy Dalton as strange as that sounds but you look at you know Dalton's not a horrific quarterback he's sort of in that Tannehill like you know the guy was okay and had some moments and if he gets into the right system and catches lightning in a bottle that could work so I don't know those could be some guys Cam Newton though you know, I think Newton still has one or two great years left in him. I was always sort of a Cam Newton believer. You know, if you drop him into New England, if you drop him into Chicago, like you're not telling me he's a, you know, he's a worse quarterback than Mitchell Trubisky. So, I think there are a number of candidates for that.
1: All right, so let's go to Shane Half, long time uh, listener, loyal listener at Half and Half. That's H-A-F-F with an N. H-A-F-F. Why are we so bad at scouting quarterbacks? It seems like it's the one position we consistently get wrong in the draft before you yell at this guy. He was talking about the scouting community, not the Eagles specifically, which I'm glad someone questioned him on it, because I was like, wait a minute, what's what's this shade of yeah, Carson right. Wentz? This will not Seriously. stand.
0: I mean, I thought he was going after the Clayton Thorson pick, though.
1: Me too. Me too. Yeah, yeah. because that was bad, yeah. which I mean, we I think everybody here saw coming. Let's talk about why the NFL is so bad at it, because what I think the hit rate for quarterbacks in the first round is somewhere between thirty-five to forty percent for the NFL. And they just seem absolutely clueless as far as like second, third, fourth round. And then next thing you know, you get a UDFI a UDFA guy that comes out of nowhere that that you know does does well or better than you, you think he you would. People like us and people that do draft stuff, you know, for a living, like the TDN guys and, and, and whatnot. They get called out constantly for their quarterback takes when in reality, I could say every quarterback that comes out in the draft is going to be bad and I will probably be right more than the NFL. So I think it's an unfair criticism because look, and I said this on the timeline the other day too. pro scouting is better than college scouting. Like I would much prefer to do pro scouting. And it's not because it's easier to project these guys, but you actually see these guys in the situations that they're going to have to execute in, in the NFL. College, there's... So much projection going on, and there's sometimes pieces where you just like this is this is not this is not NFL stuff. N- none of this translate. And then when you do see NFL stuff, well, like what's the level of competition? Why is you know defenses you know in the Big Twelve like this does that matter? Right. Is it the Texas Tech offense? Like there's so many different factors to it. Mark, do you think that's part of the reason why? Is because there's so much ambiguity? There's so many like hazy areas of the evaluation that it's hard to put it into the NFL and translate it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a you know a huge part of it, and. Just to sort of give it a bit of like context and layering, before we recorded, I was finishing up watching Jake Fromm. Okay. And I can guarantee sitting here right now that a team is going to talk themselves into Jake Fromm, that they're going to love Jake Fromm, that he's going to come off the board earlier than people expect. And people might make the case of look, you look at, you know, his game against Baylor is his final college game in a bowl game, you know, 20 of 30 for 250, two touchdowns, no interceptions, you know, a QBR of 86.2, which. Absent one or two, well, he had a couple of games earlier in the season that were better. What was one of his higher QBRs on the season? You might think, look, oh, finishing on a good note. Baylor, it's a bowl game, tough level of competition. Baylor was in on the outside, perhaps looking into to the national playoffs. Then you watch that game. Baylor's just sh- bail coverage on every snap, yeah. and so he's just out there throwing hitch routes against off coverage or bail coverage. You know, I think a good fifteen of his twenty completions probably came on that. Yeah. Or maybe like 12 or so. And, what do you take away so, from that? <laughs> what do you take away from that? He can throw a hitch route? Well, okay. Well, how much is he going to see like consistent bail coverage, bail technique in the NFL? Right. Like never or very rarely.
1: Just about and, all the NFL quarterbacks can hit a hitch route. I mean, that's why yeah, they're there.
0: <laughs> right. Like if you can't hit a hitch route in the National Football League – You're not in the National Football League. Like, it's it's the first route. It's a zero route for a reason in the route tree. Like, come on. (laughs) And so it's just – it's hard to get these quarterbacks into situations that will replicate what they're going to face on a down-to-down basis. That's why the rise of Burrow is real because Mm. you saw him do it in Tuscaloosa against Saban. Yep. In a national championship game against Venables. And mm-hmm. those defenses are as close as you're gonna to get to seeing what you're gonna see in the National Football League. And right. sometimes I, I wanna just mention this briefly. It's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. You know, when people talk about the level of competition in the college game, they say, Oh, well, he had you know, he's going up against Vanderbilt and he was going up against northwestern Louisiana. Those are the athletes on the other side. Don't forget these guys are going up against a defensive coordinator who has spent an entire week, if not more. Trying to game plan against this quarterback. And so, yeah. you know, the athletes might be one thing, and, and you might f- face some throwing windows that are going to be much bigger than you see in the NFL. But the rolled coverages, the split defenses, the sim pressures, the things that Burrow was working against, both against Alabama and against Clemson, like that's high level stuff. And so, when you get opportunities like that, and yeah, Burrow's an easy evaluation, although I know we're going to spend the next six weeks ripping the kid to shreds and by draft time he's going to be back to where he was in the summer which was a fringe draftable prospect somehow because that's the way the circle of a quarterback evaluation life works but burrows rise is real because of that he's going up against smart defensive coordinators and having success against them
1: jeff warren at jeffrey warren friend of the show says what is becoming the most important quarterback trait for scouts as they evaluate new quarterback prospects and why how has this scouting eval uh, evolved over time and and i would say i think I think all of us are more and more learning the importance of accuracy and understanding that accuracy is a hard thing to fix. I think less and less, and we've talked about this before, we're focusing on the mechanics of everything because, as we like to say often, yep. mechanics don't matter until they do. So, you know, if you're a quarterback like Mahomes, who is constantly doing just wacky things it's with crazy his feet. Stuff. And it, and it still gets there. It really doesn't matter. And along that same line, I think people are starting to value more and more quarterbacks that can create outside of structure when things break down. Would you Would you agree with those yeah. three specific points?
0: Yeah, I, I think I think you pretty much nailed it there. I mean, I think there's going to be sort of an offshoot of. Look at it, varied sports backgrounds in pr- prospective quarterbacks, particularly guys that have a baseball background, mm. because that ability to sort of make throws from different throwing platforms, like yes. it, it's nice if you have clean mechanics. But things do break down, and what happens when you're trying to like
1: ha- use crisp mechanics with a guy in your face or guys in trash at your feet? You you fall apart. Who are sorry to cut you off, but who are some of the best guys that you see doing that? Because obviously Mahomes is one. I think yeah. Stafford. Is really Stafford, great at it. Yeah, I mean Stafford was going to be the guy I was going to go to
0: next. I mean, <laughs> look, Stafford can throw from some ridiculous arm angles. And I've said this, I was on a show with Matt Waldman a couple of, like it was two summers ago, I think. And he asked me flat out, like, who would you like to see who's in that league right now? This was before the rise of Mahomes. So like, don't ding me for this. Even though we loved Mahomes, we didn't see this coming right away. Yeah. Um, you know, he asked me, like, who would you like to see take over for Brady? And I said, Stafford. Like, Stafford, I think, if he's healthy, is a tremendous quarterback. Right. And yeah. I, I I got some grief a couple of years ago when I, I said St- I had Stafford in, instead of Matt Ryan for a top five quarterbacks. Again, pre Mahomes, don't yell at me. And at Atlanta Twitter was just in my mentions for, like, a week and a half. It was good. They were Standing for their boy. But I think look from a trait-based perspective, I think Stafford is a tremendous quarterback is the injuries and stuff. So Stafford is there. Wilson, I think, is on that list. You know, you can see Wilson making throws from ridiculous platforms. Kyler Murray's on that list too. Rogers. Murray. Yeah. yeah. Murray, I mean, again, it's the, the baseball background where it's like Murray's mechanics are all over the place at times. But right. he can still make throws from silly platforms with his feet set, not set. Again, it's it's that baseball background, which is why, you know, we're curious to see Anthony Gordon. You know, we got some hope for him. We're going to die on that hill because he'll make some throws from silly platforms. So <laughs> I, I think that's part of it. You know, I think accuracy is a good one because you can't teach it. Like, it's just one of those things where you have it or you don't. And if you're an inaccurate passer, like, you can get better, but you're not suddenly becoming somebody with a great, pristine ball placement overnight or over the course of the first couple of seasons. So, you know, that's one. And then obviously, like, you know, processing speed and the ability to read and react to a defense, it still matters. We're seeing it differently, you know, as sort of NFL offenses evolve to a more spread type approach. We don't need to see a guy go, you know, X to Y to Z to the check down and do it quickly. Like the progression read structures are different, but you still have to have that ability to process information in front of you and react to it quickly, whether it's on an RPO structure
1: or simple route concept, whatever. You still have to make decisions fast because let's face it, guys are coming to kill you. Great stuff there. We'll we'll run through these last few ones real quick because there's some non-football ones I wanted to get to. Tanner Yoho at Tanner Yoho underscore asks top three history books you'd recommend. Number one, Rubicon by Tom Holland. Fantastic. Uh number two, I'll actually go with the Tom Holland. I'm doubling up on the Tom Holland here. Not not Spider-Man, but the historian I'll go with The the Histories by uh, Herodotus. The Tom Holland translation is uh, the, the, the best translation I've read. I've plugged that before. we plugged that before in this show. Um, I would actually suggest, and this is like not a top history book of all time for me, but I am going to go with something that I think football fans need because I think they need some stoicism in their life. I'm going to go with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius because you know what? At the end of the day, it's just sports. Don't let it control your life. Get over it, man. Uh, Mark, you have any book suggestions uh, for the? Yeah, I
0: literally like you know brought over a, a whole of host. Of, yeah, I've got like a stack of like twenty books. Yeah, I'll I'll keep it to five. Um, Montefiore's Psalm into the breach about the Battle of the Psalm, I think is fantastic. Also, World War One, The Price of Glory about Verdun by Alistair Horne. That is a fantastic work. You can't read World War One without uh the Guns of August and the Proud Tower by Tuchman. Those are also great. Um, two books that are actually really personal to me. I. You know, read these in college. You know, I still have them. I still like flip through them. Or actually, I reread one of them um, recently. Uh, Lenin's Tomb: The Last Days of the Soviet Empire by David Rebnik. This was just a fan- fantastic, fantastic book. And the French Revolution: Citizens by Simon Schama. It's massive. It's I don't know, a couple thousand pages or so, but it's just a tremendous story. Like it makes. The French Revolution, extremely interesting. It reads almost like a novel. Highly recommend that.
1: Josu Cantu at Josu Cantu asks, What's your guilty pleasure? Bad, inaccurate, historical movie. Mine would be 300. I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. It's it's xenophobic. It's very inaccurate. It's told from the Greek perspective, which the person's got terrible PR from that from that right. period. Um I think it's I think it's terrible in all of those aspects, but boy is it a fun romp. It's fun to go to Fantasy Land. So yeah. 300 would be uh would be my one there. And then uh let's see. There was there was another history one. Oh, someone was asking what our favorite period was. Let me just get that at so I don't While you're looking for that, I do want to mention in response to that movie question. It's not a history yeah. movie. It's a space
0: movie, The Martian with Matt Damon. Like oh, yeah. the science with it is like completely wrong. Like Neil deGrasse Tyson, like there's a scene in the end where he like punches a hole in the hand of his spacesuit to use it as like a thruster while he's in flighted in space, like Iron Man. Like that's not happening, okay? Like the physics <laughs> of it are completely wrong. The like Earth, like moon shot, like you know right. that's probably yeah. not happening. But at the same time. I will rewatch The Martian over and over and over and over again. I absolutely love it. I remember yep. when it came out and it got nominated and he won for like best actor in a comedy. And I was like, what? Before I'd seen it. And then I watched it. I was like, that has that movie has some like literally hilarious moments. Like Mark Watney,
1: Space Pirate.
0: Like that yeah. whole thing. Yeah. I love that.
1: Yeah, that's one of the ones that like if I f- I'm flipping through the channels and it's on, I've watched it a few times uh, yeah. uh, that way. I enjoy that one too. It was Neil Dutton who asked that question about the the historical time periods at N. Dutton 13. What would you say uh, is your preferential era of history to learn and read about? He says that 1919 to 1939 Europe, especially Germany, is my personal wheelhouse. I think from the book recommendations we give, it's pretty, pretty uh, cut and dry. Yeah. Mine is obviously ancient history. I mean for – For Rome, it's talking about, you know, all the the civil war period and going through Augustus, who I named my my son after. So, you know, right around the the 150 BCE to somewhere around like, you know, I don't know, 50 AD or something like that is is my favorite. Also, the Peloponnese and Persian Wars for for the Greeks is, is a big one of mine. I really want to get into Persian history, it's just not enough out there but i'm gonna be be reading uh persian on fire from tom holland who i already uh mentioned but he kind of tells it from the greek side too so that's a bit weird uh mark yours is obviously like world war one world war two like that that type of era right
0: yeah i mean i'm pretty much like 1914 to like 1991 like Mm. you know build up to world war one to like the fall of the soviet union i think neil's time frame like you know that pre-nazi germany is also an interesting time Uh, i've read a Bunch of books about like the Weimar Republic, and uh, they thought they were free about the buildup of Nazism and the rise of Hitler and stuff like that. That's a yeah. fascinating time. Like the Weimar Republic is something that I've just kind of been digging into recently. Um, but you know, I read a great book. I'm blanking on the name of it right now. That talked about like the explosion of the arts and the sciences and literature in that post World War One Germany that all gets sort of washed away by the rise of Nazism, the rise of Hitler, and you know, just just an incredible time and influx in a period of history. Uh, Hobsbawm, um, which is why another book I didn't get a chance, The Age of Extremes, A History of the World, 1914 to 1991 by Eric Hobsbawm. Just a tremendous, like, you know, book that covers that entire time frame. It's, you know, something I've read a bunch of different times. Very great book as well. Hobsbawm's a great historian too, but more of the modern era.
1: I'll throw out uh, The Dictators from uh, by Richard Overy, which is a tomb uh, but deals with uh, the buildup and, and uh, Hitler and, and Stalin and all of that, which is a, a fantastic book. So, Mark, I think that's going to do it for uh, the Twitter mailbag here. I think it's the first one we've done here. It's the the first
0: one we've done, but I definitely enjoyed it. We should probably have one, another one, like pre-draft. But we got Combine coming up. We can probably talk about Combine quarterbacks next week. And I'll be on the ground for the Combine, knocking on wood. Something doesn't go wrong with that. And we'll have some fun from
1: Indy as well. Excellent. So that's going to do it for the Twitter mailbag edition of the QB Scope Show here on BGN. We do appreciate you. Make sure you smash that subscribe button. Follow us on Twitter. Follow at BGN underscore radio. We're going to catch you next week. More to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals